If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In all of Egyptian history, only one pharaoh is known as the Great, Ramesses II. Reigning for 66 years, and living until the grand old age of 90. For centuries, Ramesses was the world's most famous pharaoh, until the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb a century ago. Egyptologist Toby Wilkinson has written a new biography of Ramesses II, as well as an accompanying feature for BBC History magazine. And he spoke to Rob Attar about one of the most fascinating characters in ancient history. Toby, you begin your feature for the magazine by making the point that of all the Egyptian pharaohs in history, only one has been known as the Great, and that, that is Ramses II. Why was only he given this honour or this accolade? 
It's a very good question. And I think, of course, that there are many great pharaohs from the long span of, of ancient Egyptian history. But perhaps Ramses II stands out for a number of reasons. Firstly, the length of his reign was one of the longest, um, if not the longest, securely attested reign of, of any pharaoh at 66 years and two months. Secondly, and I think perhaps more importantly, he left behind a greater legacy of monuments inscribed with his name than any pharaoh before or after. And so in terms of sheer visibility, Ramesses II looms very large when anyone visits Egypt. One of the first things that, that, that tourists learn to recognise is the name of Ramesses II, because it's generally carved so deep into the stone, quite deliberately so, that it could never be um, effaced. So I think his, his sheer visibility, his sheer monumental presence is what qualifies him for the epithet the Great. And then perhaps the, the third aspect, really, is you know the... The length that he went to in his own lifetime to perpetuate the mythology of his own reign. So the Battle of Kadesh, although uh, it was not a particularly uh, successful military encounter strategically, was deployed by Ramesses as part of his own personal myth with such ferocity, really, and such intensity that everybody kind of came to believe in the myth. So I would say Ramesses is great for his legacy and for his very carefully curated reputation. Now, as you mentioned, Ramesses reigned a very long time. I mean, the majority of the 13th century BC. What kind of a country was Egypt at this point? Well, this was a time when uh, Egypt was at the pinnacle of its power and influence, um, the period that Egyptologists called the New Kingdom, when Egypt had uh, an empire that stretched all the way from the banks of the Euphrates in Mesopotamia, all the way down to the fourth Nile cataract in, in Nubia. So Egypt had expanded beyond its traditional borders um, and had conquered and subjugated territories both in the Near East and in Nubia. And as a result, um, was at its peak in terms of, of international prestige and power. Nubia gave it access to extraordinary reserves of gold, uh, which it used to enhance its own reputation, its own uh, glory, and of course to trade with, with, with foreign countries. And the, the pharaohs of Egypt at this time were regarded on a par with the other great kings of, of the ancient world. So this was a time of, of huge prosperity, of huge imperial grandeur and glory. And Ramesses II had the good fortune, I suppose, to come to the throne at a time when, when Egypt was already a, a very mighty country. But you referred earlier to this Battle of Kadesh. So that suggests that relations with the other powers at this time weren't always harmonious. No, indeed, they weren't. And, and Egypt's great rival at this time was the kingdom of the Hittites. And the Hittites, I suppose, a bit like Egypt, had expanded from their heartland, in the case of the Hittites, Anatolia, central modern Turkey, and had begun themselves to create an empire through uh, Syria and, and parts of Mesopotamia. And so these two imperial powers, Egypt and the Hittites, clashed for influence and for control over northern Syria and some of the key ports uh, on the eastern Mediterranean coast. And really, this was the defining theme of Ramses II's father's reign, Seti I, trying to win for Egypt supremacy uh, in Syria. And it spilled over into the beginning of Ramses II's own reign and 
culminated with this great set-piece battle uh, against the Hittites at the site of Kadesh, which was really on the front line between Hittite and Egyptian spheres of, of influence. And so this battle, as you write in the feature, wasn't a huge success necessarily for Ramses and the Egyptians, but he then subsequently was able to win the peace, both both through kind of negotiation and also propaganda. Yes, and it, it's a really nice example from history of, of turning a defeat into um, a propaganda victory. So ultimately, the, the outcome of the Battle of Kadesh was a stalemate. Neither the Hittites nor the Egyptians um, were able to prevail. And really, the, the status quo that existed before the battle reverted very quickly after the battle. But Ramses does two things in the aftermath of, of Kadesh. First is that he, he spins a narrative around the battle and around his own personal heroism in the heat of battle and and uses this to really promote his own kingship throughout uh, the Egyptian empire. And he does this both in word and in image. And it's a pretty relentless barrage of propaganda uh, portraying him as a great military victor. So there's that aspect of it. But more pragmatically, I think Ramesses quickly realises that he's not going to win a military victory over the Hittites, that the two armies are pretty well balanced. And so over the course of the couple of decades after the Battle of Kadesh, he's clearly putting out feelers to see if a diplomatic uh, resolution is possible to this long-standing conflict between uh, these two kingdoms. And indeed, that is what happens. And what is negotiated between the Hittites and the Egyptians is the first comprehensive international peace treaty in history. Um, and its measures are very far-reaching, very um, enlightened. And what it allows Ramses to do is to reap, if you like, the peace dividend. He no longer has to fight the Hittites on his northeastern flank. And he's able to instead direct his resources both to other parts of his kingdom, but crucially to building in, you know, in his own name and in his own image. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. And what would you say are some of the sort of key construction projects of Ramesses' reign? Gosh, there are so many. I mean, it's it's quite daunting, actually, to think about all of the massive monuments that were either built from scratch during Ramesses II's reign or completed. But I suppose some of the ones that really stand out, there's the King's Memorial Temple on the west bank of, of, of Luxor, uh, which we know today as the Ramesseum. I mean, it, it still bears his name. This was, you know, a monumental edifice designed to not only celebrate the cult of the king during his lifetime, but but through all eternity as well. And it was surrounded by enormous numbers of storerooms. So it was really intended to be almost the kind of central bank of ancient Egypt, a store of great wealth, as well as a temple to uh, to the king's eternal soul. There was the great hyperstyle hall at Karnak, which still remains one of the uh, outstanding glories of, of ancient Egyptian architecture. There was the new first port and, and pylon and, and colossal statues and obelisks at Luxor Temple. And then a whole series of, of extraordinary temples down in Nubia, of which, of course, the most famous must still be uh, the two temples at Abu Simbel, one of them dedicated to Ramses himself and the other dedicated to his uh, first uh, wife, Nefertari. But added to all of that, he also built a brand new capital city in the northeastern Nile Delta, uh, what was known as Per Ramesses, the House of Ramesses, which in its day must have been one of the great cities of of the ancient world. So um, he was not short of, of ambition when it came to building projects. And having researched his life and reign, what, what sense do you get of his personality? What comes through, I think, is uh, of a man who was acutely conscious of his own inheritance and of his own destiny. So I think that the the interesting thing about Ramses uh, and his family is that they were relatively recent pharaohs. So it was only Ramses' uh, grandfather who was adopted into the royal family. And I think Ramesses was acutely conscious of his family's middle-class origins and, and very keen to establish himself as the father of a great and mighty dynasty. And so he not only had an, a great interest in displaying an unbroken line of kingship with the past, but he also seems to have had an eye fixed firmly on the future and his his future reputation, hence all of his his building works. But the other thing that comes through, I think, is is of a man who was at once both very megalomaniac, I mean, very, very sure of, of his own position and wanting to enhance his own reputation, but also surprisingly thin-skinned. And, and we see this in an extraordinary correspondence which has survived between Ramesses and the royal family of the Hittites in the aftermath of the the peace treaty. And Ramesses is very quick to to read into the Hittite correspondence perceived slights uh, on himself and and on Egypt. And, And I think that image of 
a bombastic megalomaniac ruler that also has a very thin skin is one that perhaps we might recognise from more recent history. Now, as you mentioned earlier, Ramesses reigned for an astonishing 66 years, and he, I believe he was about 90 by the time he finally died. How unusual was it for a man of this age to be even alive at this point, but also then to be able to hold on to the reins of power when entering their 10th decade? It's highly unusual in ancient Egypt for anybody to, to live to be 90. Uh, you know, we know from, from skeletal evidence that the average life expectancy in ancient Egypt uh, was around 35. So if, if you made it you know, to the age of 40, you were doing really well and you were considered to be an old person. For, for Ramesses to live to the age of 90, I mean, he really must have seemed like a god to, to many of his subjects. He certainly outlived uh, many of his own children, and there would have been people who uh, not only were born and died within Ramses' reign, but whose children and grandchildren were born and died within Ramses' reign. So he must have seemed like he was going on forever. And I think the fact that he not only lived to such a great age, but evidently maintained a very firm grip on the affairs of state right until the end, tells us something about his personality. And and I think it's very interesting when you look at his mummy, which is one of the best preserved of the royal mummies from ancient Egypt, you really see there the face of a dignified and determined individual. You know, as much as one can read character into, into facial features, Ramses really does uh, come across as somebody who was sure of himself, um, dignified and composed, um, and, you know, it, it's a very regal face um, that we see in, in, in Ramses II's mummy. So I think he must have had an extraordinary force of personality, um, as well as this extraordinarily long life. And actually then, just as an aside, if we're talking about his mummy, I think I do need to ask you about this urban legend that Ramesses received a passport in the 1960s. Is that true? <laughs> Almost certainly not, although it would be very nice. Um, so uh, what happened um, is that uh, Ramesses' mummy was was transported um, to a specialist laboratory in Paris uh, to undergo, well, principally preservation, um, but at the same time, scientific examination. And uh, he was, it is true, flown to uh, Paris in, you know, in some style and, you know, received as uh, a visiting head of state almost, albeit a dead one. And then when he was returned to Egypt, his coffin was, was covered in uh, deep blue uh, velvet drape, uh, embroidered in gold by the, the seamstresses of the Louvre. So he was given all of the, uh, the trappings of a monarch. The press... Uh, almost certainly concocted the story that he'd been given a passport uh, which said occupation uh, king brackets deceased. Uh, it's a lovely story and you can see how it would have made a, a great newspaper headline, but uh, there is no evidence that that actually happened. You, you can actually see um, people have, have produced images of this passport, so I presume those are just fakes that have been doing the rounds on the internet then. Uh, I suspect they are. I mean, it's amazing what one can do with, with modern <laughs> technology. <laughs> now, you, you alluded earlier to the fact that many of Ramesses' own children had died before him. So did that make the succession quite tricky after he did die? Yes, one of the great ironies, I think, of Ramesses II's reign is that in seeking to establish himself as a, as a great sort of father figure of, of the dynasty, he actually uh, unwittingly sowed the, the seeds for quite considerable turmoil in the years after his death. He outlived 
at least three of his crown princes. And in fact, it was his 13th son who became the next pharaoh, Merenptah. Now, although Merenptah seems to have had a fairly successful and fairly stable reign, after his death, the royal family seems to have been uh, at daggers drawn, deciding on who the next pharaoh would be. There were simply so many children and grandchildren of Ramses II who had a claim to the throne that you have this, this internecine conflict breaking out between rival claimants after uh, Mer and Ptah's death. And so, ironically, the 19th dynasty, Ramses II's dynasty, ends in complete chaos and confusion. And it wasn't at all the future that he had hoped for 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 his own royal line. Okay, and what could you tell us about Ramesses' wives? Ramesses II is quite unusual in ancient Egyptian history for the prominence that he gave in his own lifetime to his wives. Um, Very often, royal wives... um, are are very sort of marginal figures in the official record, but not so with Ramesses II. He dedicated one of the the, the temples at Abu Simbel to his first and and arguably um, the love of his life, um, Nefertari. And the tomb that he built for her in the the Valley of the Queens, I think it it still is regarded as the most beautiful tomb uh, ever constructed in ancient Egypt. Um, He then had a second great wife who seems to emerge after Nefertari's death, uh, Iset Nofret. Um, and then after her death, he, he takes uh, a number of, of, um, of other great wives, some of whom we think were his own daughters. But what is very clear is that he gives the women in his life a, a really unusual prominence uh, in the art, artistic and art, architectural records. Um, and that was, that was quite a departure from pharaonic tradition. And I think it must tell us something about Ramsay's own personality, that actually he was extremely close, certainly to Nefertari, um, and wanted to elevate her above what was usual for a pharaoh's wife. I didn't even realise there was a Valley of the Queens. That's a terrible uh, lack of knowledge on my part. Uh, yes, it's not as well known as Valley of the Kings, but it, it, it has a number of, of Ramses II's wives and daughters buried in it, and then some from Ramses III. But it wasn't used over such a long period of time as, as the Valley of the Kings. But some of the tombs uh, in the Valley of the Queens are, are really, really beautiful, really spectacular. Now, we talked earlier about this idea of Ramses being the great pharaoh, and that's a name he certainly had in recent times. Was he viewed in this way during his own lifetime? It's quite hard with any Egyptian pharaoh to to sort of get beyond the barrage of official propaganda, which, you know, the, the royal court would have put out, and in Ramses, the case, you know, did put out in word, in picture, in building. There is a, a sense that this, this barrage of propaganda was so overwhelming in the case of Ramses II, and, you know, as we've just discussed, he lived to such an incredibly ripe old age that I suspect there was a huge amount of reverence for him. I mean, more perhaps even than, than, than an ordinary pharaoh and a sense that he was a godlike presence. So I imagine, you know, that, that there certainly is evidence within his lifetime for ordinary Egyptians worshipping at the feet of, of his statues. So... All Egyptian pharaohs, to a greater or lesser extent, was were thought to be divine. But Ramesses went a, a stage further, and he actually had monumental statues of himself erected in, in many 
of the, the towns and cities of Egypt. And we know that Egyptians would come and pray at those statues. So they were, they were praying to Ramses directly as a god. And that was very unusual. So I think he did uh, have this aura, um, this, this reverence during his own lifetime. But then I suppose like all great rulers, and particularly those with a streak of despotism, his memory posthumously was, was a little more um, contested, shall we say. And how was he viewed outside of Egypt? How did the other major civilizations see this? Well, the correspondence that we have that survives um, suggests that they, the other great kings of, of, of the ancient world were also, to an extent, in awe of, of Ramses. I think they were certainly in awe of the wealth of Egypt because of its extraordinary gold reserves and its great granaries and, and agricultural fertilities. So they, they recognised Egypt was a great power and therefore the, the pharaoh of Egypt was, you know, was a force to be reckoned with. What they thought of him as a man, of course, we, we have very, very little evidence other than perhaps these revealing letters from, from the king and the queen of the Hittites, which don't suggest that they were um, entirely taken in by Ramses' own myth. I think they could see him for the for the human that he was, whereas his own subjects in Egypt, probably all they saw was the, this sort of face of a divine pharaoh. Now, is it correct that Ramesses, Ramesses II is the only pharaoh to be named in the Hebrew Bible? He is certainly the pharaoh that is is best known in the Hebrew Bible. I think there, there is a reference to Shishak in the Bible, which um, may refer to a, a later pharaoh who, who we know as Shoshenk. But Ramesses is, is mentioned, I think, four times uh, by name, either as an individual or, or giving his name to the great capital city that, that he built in the northeastern delta. So if you, if you like, if, if there's one pharaoh that, that shines through the biblical account, it, it is Ramesses. And, and I think what that demonstrates is that his posthumous fame was greater than that of, of, of any other pharaoh, even though other pharaohs arguably achieved great things. Now, and I certainly look, well, when I was younger, I certainly got the impression that Ramses II was the pharaoh in the Exodus story. And I was sort of disregarding whether or not the Exodus story actually happened. Is there any evidence to associate him with those events in the Bible? The biblical narrative and the evidence, archaeological and, and textual from Egypt, really don't have any, any points of which they intersect. So we're, we're looking here at, at two really quite separate traditions. And it's very hard to point to any specific incident within Ramesses II's reign that one might then interpret in, in the light of, of the, the biblical tradition. It is true, of course, um, that the construction of, of Ramesses II's dynastic capital in the northeastern delta will have involved um, workers uh, who were Semitic speaking. Um, I think that's un, uh, undoubted. Um, it is true that uh, there was a, a lot of toing and froing between Egypt and uh, Syria Palestine during his reign. Um, it is true that you know he took lots of prisoners of war during the early part of his reign uh, when he was engaging in military campaigns. So he certainly will have had a lot of contacts with the part of the world in which the Hebrew uh, Bible stories uh, originated. But beyond that, actually very hard to, to specify anything that could directly link him um, to the Exodus story. So why do you think it is then that so many people do associate him with Exodus. Is it just his fame as a pharaoh? I, I think the fact that his his name occurs 
four times in the Bible, and the fact that he built a huge capital city you know, right on Egypt's border with, with the Semitic lands, and that he, you know, until the discovery of Tutankhamun 100 years ago, Ramesses was the pharaoh that everybody had heard of. Um, and if, in a sense, if they wanted to look for a great pharaoh from the past, their thoughts immediately turned to Ramesses. And so I think, you know, a number of these different factors are possibly conflated in, in the Western imagination to, to propel Ramesses into the position where, you know, if you're looking for a, for a pharaoh, <laughs> uh, it, almost in connection with anything, Ramesses II seems to fit the bill. So is it fair to say then that his fame continues really from after his death until the present day? Oh, very, very much so. Not only the biblical narrative, but classical authors refer to Ramesses, or rather his surviving monuments, and a corrupted Greek version of his throne name, um, Ozymandias, becomes you know famous not only uh, amongst cla- classical authors, but of course also um, through Shelley's great poem. And then really in the 19th century, travellers to Egypt, they all want to see the monuments of Ramses II, whether it's the Ramesseum, whether it's Abu Simbel in particular, Amelia Edwards, famous founder of the Egypt Exploration Fund, in her travelogue, A Thousand Miles Up the Nile. I mean, she devotes an entire chapter to Ramses II. She doesn't give that much space to any other of the pharaohs. And so he does loom very, very large in, in the Western imagination, really until 1922, and uh, it's only the discovery of, of Tutankhamun's tomb that essentially knocks Ramses II off his perch as the most famous pharaoh. But, you know, right up to, to the early 20th century, if people had heard of any pharaoh at all, it would have been of, of Ramses II. And I imagine from what you've said about Ramesses, he wouldn't be too happy about being upstaged by Tutankhamun. <laughs> no, I don't think he would. Uh, he was a nonagenarian who'd reigned for 66 years, left the greatest architectural legacy of any pharaoh. And you know, to be supplanted in the popular imagination by uh, an 18-year-old who you know, reigned for less than a decade and really left behind very little in terms of an architectural legacy, uh, I think would have, um, yeah, would not have gone down well with Ramesses. But I suppose, you know, in in a sense, he would also have been pleased that, what, more than 3,000 years after his his death, we're still talking about him. Now, we've kept returning to this idea of greatness with Ramesses. As someone who has written and studied, written about and studied so many of the Egyptian pharaohs, do you think he was the greatest? He wasn't the greatest military leader. I think that accolade would go to to Tuthmosis I or, or third. He was the greatest builder. I think we have to, to, to give him uh, that credit. He, he did leave the, the greatest architectural legacy of any pharaoh. But I think ultimately he, he was the greatest self-publicist in a civilization that, was, that, that actually prized self-publicity. I mean, the pharaohs were nothing if they didn't um, promote their own reputations. That was expected of an ancient Egyptian king. And Ramses II simply did it over a longer period of time and you know, more assiduously than any other. So I suppose by the ancient Egyptians' own standards of greatness, he probably is the greatest pharaoh. And do you see any echoes of Ramesses in later leaders and, and have any actually self-consciously tried to imitate him? Well, I think if you look around the world today, you will see examples of megalomaniac rulers who have adopted, if you like, some of the same 
techniques that were perfected by Ramesses over 3,000 years ago, whether that's the construction of, of monumental buildings in their name, or indeed, in some cases, you know, gigantic statues uh, of themselves in their capital cities, or whether it's rulers who develop a particular narrative and promote that uh, as, you know, the only acceptable truth, uh, even if it plays fast and loose with the with the facts. I think these are all techniques of despotic rulers that we recognise, you know, from our television screens and, and newspapers today. So I think what is very interesting as, as an Egyptologist is that because ancient Egypt was the first nation state in history and, and the country that developed, you know, forms of government that are actually still with us, we see a lot of the things that we will recognise today being worked out for the very first time and perfected uh, under the pharaohs. And, and Ramses II certainly provides the template for any would-be autocrat. That was Toby Wilkinson. Ramses the Great, Egypt's King of Kings, is out now published by Yale University Press. And as I mentioned earlier, you can read Toby's article on Ramesses in the July issue of BBC History magazine. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.